How bad we beat you last night? <laughs> my, my, touchy this morning, aren't we? <clears throat> I have a feeling we play a doubleheader next week, and I have a feeling we play J Joe Woodruff's team and Joe Heater's team. I watched those two teams play early on in the season, and I thought I was watching a rendition of a clash of the titans. <laughs> we have our work cut out for us. I think my, our, well, we'll just see what happens, but it's fun. I don't care as long as we all get to eat afterwards. That's all I can share about anyhow. <coughs> Well, if you have your Bibles today, I want you to turn to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, today we're going to begin our final leg of our study of the book of 2 Corinthians. We'll finish it up today, and uh, next week I'm going to take a couple of weeks and uh, do a kind of a mini camp series on leadership uh, before we get into the book of Proverbs. I forgot to tell you that... Uh, Remember Dean from Ruckman School who teaches down there and works in the bookstore. He is going, him and his wife are going to be here the week of uh, next week. They're coming in on Tuesday and they're going to be here all week. So we're going to kind of plan some things. We haven't thing formalized what we're going to do on 4th of July yet, but uh, we'll include all of them. And he's going to preach to you next Sunday. There'll be no, uh, there, there will be Bible study this week, but there won't be any on the 4th of July. And he's going to preach uh, Sunday morning, so that'll be a great blessing. He's a good preacher. We really enjoy having him around here. And, um, and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get into that mini camp on, uh, on leadership, and then we'll, <clears throat> we'll get into the book of Proverbs. Just as uh, the book of 2 Corinthians is the handbook on ministry, the book of Proverbs is the handbook um, on leadership. Uh, it contains, as far as I'm concerned, the mind of God and gives you the principles that every leader ought to operate by in every scenario. We'll, we'll go it in great length. But today, we're going to begin the final leg, and we're going to look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. And you remember that the way we did the, the two books of Corinthians, I wanted to show you the contrast. And we took 1 Corinthians first, and we talked about uh, um, how that uh, uh, it's a great picture of the church today. We saw in 1 Corinthians where they were a bunch of spiritual babies. They were arguing and fighting and bickering among themselves. They were fighting and jockeying for position and power, and uh, nothing ever really was getting done. And we talked about that, and uh, then I showed you in the book of 2 Corinthians how that uh, it got turned around, and then we studied and have been studying the growth process. And uh, Paul loved this church. If anything's evident to you at this point, and you should have all your notes in your Bible now in, in these two books and should have a little outline about each one of them so you can better understand it when you teach somebody else. But it's obvious how much Paul loved this church. It's one that he himself started on his first missionary trip when he went to Corinth. And he tries to uh, help them uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians by addressing their issues. And we went through it in great detail. I showed you in chapter 1 how... Uh, how they're, they're arguing about who baptized who. They're, they're tagging some spiritual significance that if you were baptized by me, you know, that, and then somebody who's a nobody baptized you, that you would be more uh, prone to be more spiritual because uh, somebody of notoriety baptized you, in ca case Paul. Of course, that's ludicrous. But they're fighting about that. They're not going by the book. They're using worldly wisdom instead of godly wisdom. And uh, in chapter 3, they're, they're 
actually arguing about who won who to Christ, that you're more spiritual if someone of prominence won you to Christ than just some nobody out there that opened the Bible and showed you how to be saved. Chapter 4, he tells them that they're not being good stewards of the mysteries of God. They're not teaching the Bible the way that they should. Chapter 5 shows us that there's sin in the church and there's problems with that that they're not dealing with. Chapter 6, because there are issues in the church, Instead of taking it to the church body and letting the pastor or the deacons deal with it, no, 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 they're going to court. Uh, they're taking it to court, and they're suing each other over issues that uh, they shouldn't uh, be suing each other over. Chapter 7 is the great chapter that they're messed up on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. They got that out of whack. In chapter 8, they're uh, eating things that have been sacrificed to idols, and that's caused a big problem in the church. Chapter 9, they're all messed up on their liberty in Christ. Uh, chapter 10, he talks about how they're forsaking the Old Testament principles of examples and ensamples. And remember, I told you that an, an example is something that you do, but an ensample is something that you are. And they're all messed up on that. Uh, chapter 11, they're messed up on the Lord's Supper and the authority of the church. Chapter 11, uh, 12, 13, and 14, it's the great three chapters in your Bible on spiritual gifts. And yes, you're right, they're messed up on that too. Chapter 15, they're messed up on the resurrection of the saints. And in chapter 16, they're messed up on the collection of the saints. They, they got a lot of issues. This church is a mess. It shows you what always happens when a church forsakes its roots and gets out of the Word of God and stops doing things, as I said, by the book. Now, you'll remember that within this church uh, was a bunch of disgruntled people. And that's what happens in, in churches where people don't grow, or they quit growing. They get they just gets contented, they get just disgruntled, and this is what happened here. And uh, a group of people had come to the place where they thought they knew more about building a church than Paul did. And they give him problems, and, and it's just like all disgruntled people. They, they don't like being told that they're wrong, and it's caused an issue. And this, uh, this, caused, uh, this crowd gives Paul problems in all through his dealing with his church not just in 1 Corinthians, uh, but also in 2 Corinthians. But at some point in the, in the time, the majority of the people, they recognize that Paul is who he says he is. They understand that he has the authority by God to do what he says he do, does, and they accept it. And that brings us into the great book that we just finished, or about to finish, on 2 Corinthians. But I want you to remember, there was always an element of that church, uh, as there will be in every church, that uh, did not agree and did not like Paul. And uh, all of this makes for some great lessons for any church, no matter where you were at in the history of the world. I mean, it's just some great stuff. Uh, that brings us up to the book we're about to finish, which is 2 Corinthians. Now, in this book, as I already said, it's just the opposite. In this book, where in the first Corinthians, chapter by chapter, he dealt with them on issues that they were messed up on. In this book, because an element got right, now he begins chapter by chapter to begin to teach them the aspect of ministries. I have often thought of the Charles Dickens book many years ago that he wrote was called A Tale of Two Cities. And uh, you could take these two books and talk about the tale of two churches because they really represent two different types of churches. The first Corinthians represents, that book shows us a worldly baby-filled church that is full of disgruntled people who can't get anything done. Second Corinthians shows us uh, the other side of what a church should be, and uh, it shows us people who have God's power and blessing in their life, and, and God's getting some things done. For us, 2 Corinthians is a great book to teach us ministry. And you remember we came through each chapter, and I took time with each chapter showing you 
Each one portrays a different aspect of the ministry. Chapter 1, we saw the suffering of the minister. And we learned that a, a man ministers with his people by understanding the things that he goes through in his life and then understanding that suffering and then help somebody else go through the things that they're going through. And you see that here in our church all the time. Chapter 2 talked about the forgiving spirit of the minister. And chapter 3 talked about proof of your ministry. Uh, chapter 4 deal with the definition of our ministry. Chapter 5 uh, was the great perspective of our ministry, the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, chapter uh, 6 was the fellowship of our ministry. Chapter 7 was the promises that are given to the minister. Uh, chapter 8 and 9 were two great chapters that we talked about lay out the heart of the minister. Chapter 10, we find the mind of the minister. Chapter 11, we find the wisdom of the minister. And chapter 12, we found the last time the humility of the minister. And today, chapter 13, uh, we're going to focus on the brokenness of the minister. You know, in the last 40 years or so of my ministry, uh, I was trying to think about this the other day. I probably put out somewhere around 30 guys that we sent out oh, in the course of my life that went out and started churches, maybe more than that. Uh, but uh, certainly at least 30 young men and their wives that went out. Some went to the mission field. Some went out to start churches. And, uh, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago on Thursday night, Kenny Stadler was here and I introduced him. Kenny's a young man that came out of my ministry about 25, 26 years ago. Went up to Monmouth, Illinois to start a church and was there for a while. And now he's down pastoring a church down in, in Arkansas. Uh, my birthday was a couple weeks ago, and uh, on my birthday, I always get two phone calls from two people out of my past. One of them is Richard Zarst, which called me, and I had lunch with him yesterday, by the way. The other one is a friend of mine that I won to Christ a number of years ago. His name was Greg McClintock. Greg McClintock lives in Monmouth, Illinois. And uh, years ago, when we started a church up in Monmouth, Greg was the prosecuting attorney uh, in that little town, just a small little town up there in Illinois. And uh, I was going up there helping this church. And in fact, I preached a revival up there. And, and uh, in the course of time, uh, Greg got saved. And we became great friends. And, uh, uh, you know, he, uh, he went then from being a prosecuting attorney to being a, a judge. And he just retired a year ago. He always called me on my birthday. And so he called me on my birthday this year. And we talked for a while. And then he dropped the bomb on me. He told me that uh, he retired from being a judge last year. He didn't have anything to do. There was a little Baptist church in a town down the road, about 50, 60 people. The pastor resigned, and they asked him if he'd be the pastor. So now he's pastoring a church there. There's another one that got sent up. And uh, I tell you, I, I, when I would go to these guys, and after they would go out, I'd always try to help them get established, and I would go up and I'd spend some time with them. And when I went up there, and they would get whatever people they had together, and I'd always teach two books. I'd always go up on a, I, in some cases, I'd go up every month, and I'd spend time up there, and I'd help them. We'd get their little people together, and, I, and I'd try to pull it all together and show them and try to help them, much like what Paul did with the churches that he started. There's two books that I always taught them. They're the only two books that I really cared about them understanding at that point at the beginning of starting a church. And I would teach them first and second uh, Corinthians. Uh, when I'd go to preach for them and to help establish them, I'd always teach these two books. And the reason, because these two books are the foundation on which a church has to be built today. You have to understand the difference of a wrong church to be able to build the right church. 
And I would, I would go up there and spend, in some cases, a year, two years, helping them get off the ground, helping them understand, and these would be the two books that I would, I would, I would deal with. Now, today, we're going to look at the final chapter, chapter 13, and we're going to talk about the brokenness of the minister. And this is another great one that contains one of the, I think, the greatest sermons that uh, you could ever give your people. And for those of you who are ball captains, whether it's softball or whether it's uh, uh, volleyball or whatever, this is a great devotion. It's a great, great little three-point concept that really puts it all together for you. You know, when it comes to Paul, you cannot read his books or study his life and not see Paul's love and burden for the churches that he started. He worries over them like a, frets over them like a mother hen. Uh, he knows what's out there. He has the abundance of the revelation that God gave him. He wants to impart that to them. And he has a real burden for the people and the churches that he starts. We now know that from our study last week that, as I just said, God revealed the body mystery to him. He got the whole picture of what the church age was, what God intended it to be, and how to relate it back to the Old Testament, what God was doing with the nation of Israel. He understands now the complete plan that God has uh, put forth. And, and you see it in his life, and you see it in his writings. And when he tries to show people what God is doing, and he tries to get them to see how absolutely important it is for them to be involved, and yet he finds people like the church at Corinth that he invested, boy, how many, how many years of his life in? And he sees and, and, and they reject what he has to say. They reject God's plan. You can see in his life that it becomes a, a real burden for him. Now, I got to say that in time, many people in this church got it. And they started to fulfill God's plan for the church, hence the book of 2 Corinthians. But as in all churches, and some of you boys down the line will get out and pastor on your own, and, and you'll find this to be true. As in all churches, as any time period, you will have people who simply will not do anything and resist the plan of God for themselves. And the burden that Paul feels is simply the burden that he sees in people, that he sees great potential, but he also knows that they're wasting their life. And as a, and as a, as, as a pastor, I, I, I don't know of any more tragedy in a person's life than to see somebody who you truly is saved, somebody who truly has the ability to be something for God, and yet just simply refuse to do that. Uh, and Paul is a great example for us in so many things that he accomplished. I mean, there's huh, so many areas that we can glean from. But one of the greatest areas that I ever learned, one of the greatest things I ever learned from him in studying his life, one of the greatest areas that I ever gleaned from him was on how to build a church. Paul taught me by watching what he does, and you've heard me say it many, many times. This is not some great revelation that I'm going to drop on you today. You've heard me say it, but I'm telling you where I got it from. I saw in his life and understood how he built churches that Paul never built buildings, Paul built people. And the key to building a church is not building a building because the building is just four walls and a roof. What makes a church a church is the people. You've heard me say it many, many times that when you build a church, you build it one person at a time. You build it one couple at a time. You build it one family at a time. And that's the way uh, you have to do it. And that's what I saw in my life many, many, many years ago uh, by watching Paul. You know, in comparison, all parents worrying. I watch you parents. Uh, your, kids, your, your kids are just 
basically two or three years old and they're already worried about who they're going to marry down the line someplace. You can't have, I've actually had kids, uh, couples tell me, well, we want to have kids, but I don't know if I want to bring kids into this world as unstable and all that it is. And I understand that. I, I don't think that's a, a good philosophy of life, but uh, I think that, you know, God can take care of your kids just like he takes care of you. But I understand that fear. And, and many parents worry and fret over their children to do well. I mean, uh, who, what parent doesn't get a little queasy in your stomach when you go to teacher parent conferences at school? I, I've never met. I've never met. I've never met a parent in the world that, that w- was looking forward to their son being a drug addict, a drunk, and a, and a you know, and, and populating the world with illegitimate children. I never found a parent that said, "That's my boy." We want our kids to be successful. And we want to hear the teacher say, we don't want to hear the teacher say, well, he's not really applying himself. We don't want to hear the teacher say, he's not doing well. We don't want to hear the teacher say, he should be doing better. He's not reaching his full potential. Those words flow off my lips because I heard it so many times when my parents went to parent-teacher conferences many, many years ago. We want our children to marry somebody good. We want our children to be a success. Parents know that very in the early years, uh, the skills of self-motivation will either make or break them as being successful in life. Most parents, I think, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think so. Most parents want their kids to be better and have more and be more successful and not make the same mistakes that we all made. I think that's true. As like I said, I never saw a parent that wanted their kid to not succeed. No, no parent ever said, I want my kid to grow up to be a bum. Well, if you can understand that as a parent, try to put yourself in Paul's place. He builds these churches. He's an evangelist in the biblical sense of the word. He goes in. He gives birth to these churches. He wins these people to Christ. And you, as a parent who wants your child to be successful, him as a, as a minister wants these churches to be successful and the people in them. I understand that. I, I feel the same way as a pastor. I want all of you to be successful. I, again, the greatest burden that I see many, many, feel many, many times is watching you waste your life because I know the potential that some of you have. I know the potential that some of you could reach and what you could do. But you know what? It's one of those things where, you know, your children, your children don't like you hovering over them and always telling them that they could do this better or do that better. They don't appreciate it in most cases. And just like your children don't appreciate it, as a pastor, both people don't appreciate it. But it doesn't relieve the burden. It doesn't, doesn't take away from the fact that Paul, like you with your children, wants them to do well. Now, Paul in this last chapter, he simply brings all the material together and he kind of sums it up. You got to remember now, he's given them a lot of information. He's held them accountable on a lot of things. And now we've come to the place where he kind of brings it all together. And the theme of this chapter will be the brokenness of the minister. His burden for his people in the church of Corinth that he founded. A brokenness over the plan of God being rejected by people, God's people, to do God's work. 
Now, I'm going to read for you here the first five verses in chapter 13, and then we'll come back and we'll make, some, uh, we'll make some comments on it here this morning. And I'll show you the greatest sermon that you could ever give anybody, and uh, it's a good one. 13.1. This is the third time now I am coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. I told you before and foretell you as if I were present uh, the second time, and being absent now, I write to them which hitherfore I uh, have sinned, and to all others that if I come again, I will not spare you. Since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, which to you word is not weak, but in mighty in, in you. For though he was crucified through weakness, yet he liveth by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know not your own selves, how that Christ, Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates. But I trust that you shall uh, know that we are not reprobates. Now I pray to God that you do no evil, and, and, and not that we should appear approved, but that ye should do that which is honest, though we be as reprobates. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. Help us to work through this passage today, and as we close out this great book, let us not lose sight of all that we've learned and all that we've come through. And help us, as Paul intended today by this great passage, to pull all of this together and to come away with a common understanding of some things that might make us better for you. And we'll thank you now and praise you in Jesus' name for the sake we ask it. Amen. Paul says in verse 1, this is the third time I'm coming to you. He had come to them now for three times trying to get some people in his church to understand what God wanted them to do. I mean, if anybody, as I said last week, does it by the book, it was Paul. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, which is a great principle in itself where it says, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, let my word be established. Three times Paul has poured his heart out to them, and three times they have rejected him and, and shown the indifference uh, to him, and now he follows a basic principle. Titus chapter 3, verse 10 is a great uh, principle that you can use in many things in your life. It says, avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. Then he says in verse 10, a man that is a heretic after the first and second admonition, reject, knowing that he uh, that is such is subverted and sinneth being condemned of himself. He, the Bible says the principle is this. If you deal with somebody who's a heretic, somebody who is absolutely against the truth, somebody who just wants to argue and fight and bring up everything that, uh, that has no relevance to what you're trying to do, he says, give it to him once, give it to him twice, after the second time, you can be done with it. Now, Paul goes the extra mile and goes the third time. And there's always an extra mile clause when you're dealing with people to be used at your discretion. But fundamentally, the Bible says you give a man the truth once, you give it to him twice, and if he's a heretic and he rejects it, it's on him and it's on his own. And there's some great lessons to learn uh, in this great passage. And some of you uh, already are well aware of some of the things I'm going to talk about today. And you got to realize that as Paul is pointing out here, and it's very clear, there's some people that God puts into your life that you're simply not going to be able to reach. Now, you're going to have to come to terms with that. One of the things I, I tell people when they start working with people is to never take anything personal. 
because there will be people that you try to help, people that you have relationship with who will pretty much uh, uh, turn around and do some pretty terrible things to you. And if you wear your feelings on your shirt sleeve and you take things personal, it's, it's going to knock you out of that thing. At some point in your spiritual growth, you have to realize that you can't help everybody. Not everybody you're going to give the truth to is going to accept it. And there will be some people in your life, and I, I, I'm not just talking about unsaved people. I'm talking about saved people. There'll be some people in your life that you're just never going to be able to get to. They're never going to be able to reach them. People who through their life is such a disaster, and yet in the midst of their broken lives with all of their problems, you see a very indifferent attitude of self-righteousness that you can't ever break through. Hey, you see it down on the street with the people that you work with in the, in the, in the homeless ministry. You know, I don't care how low a guy gets if he doesn't have anything. I've seen drunks on Skid Row who had absolutely nothing left, and yet they were self-righteous and bragged about the fact that they knew where to find a meal, that they bought their own drinks. And I'm telling you, self-righteousness has no bottom line to it. You will find in the midst of people whose lives are an absolute disaster, People's lives, who they're losing their families, they're losing their kids, they're, 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 they're kids, you can almost look on a projected chart and see those kids out in the world, one, two, three, four, five, off they go. Their life is absolute, a, a mess in every aspect, but yet they reject any truth that comes their way. You have to learn to deal with that. You have to understand that. You really do. Now that's what Paul faces here. And, and so will you when you start to work with people. Verse 3 says, and I love this, since ye seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, really? Really? This is the Apostle Paul. This is the man who just had the revelation of God that God revealed to him the whole church. And there's some idiot in the church of Corinth or group of idiots that are so disgruntled when they see Paul because they don't like Paul, that they're saying, okay, Paul, we seek some proof of Christ in you. Really? I, I, Paul is probably, one of, in the New Testament anyhow, probably my favorite character. And I, I, I can sympathize with him so much, and I, I've learned so much from him. I know you can't go back in a time capsule, and, uh, but uh, I would love to go back and defend Paul. I would love to go back knowing what I know now and take on these disgruntled people that wanted to bring charges against Paul. I, I think that, that, that for me, just because of what I've got from him, I mean, I, I think I could do a good job of it. I'm knowing what I know about Paul and what I know about the church, I would have loved for God just to let me go back in time and walk in that door when he's in that meeting and they're all coming on him and I just say, guys, I know I'm dressed different than you are and my hair's cut a little different than yours, but I got something I want to say to you in response to your last question. Let's see now. Hmm. Looking for proof that he's really God's man, are you? Well, let's start with this. How about the abundance of the revelation that God gave him that he never gave you? Oh, I know. I got another one coming through here. Give me a minute. I'm a little jet lag. I just came back 19 centuries. Oh, I know. 
How about what God is doing in his life in people and starting churches that he's never done in your life? Hmm, yes, I got it now. All of my, that beaming up, all my microorganisms are now coming back together. I got it. How about the fact of this, guys? How about the fact that you people who don't like Paul, who are criticizing him and saying, can you give me some proof that you're God's man? How about the fact that you be the proof? How about the fact that you would not even be saved and be here if it wasn't for Paul? I'd love to defend him. I'd love to defend him. Years ago, I had a young guy that, that uh, and, and he was a nice kid, but you couldn't teach him anything. He wanted to go be a missionary. We all told him, you're not missionary material. And uh, this is probably 30 years ago, maybe longer than that. And some of you would remember this guy if I said it, so I won't bring it up because he's still in Kansas City and he's, he's pastoring a church. And, uh, and, I, uh, and so he went, to, he went to the mission field, failed there. Came back and, and about 22, 23 years ago, he started to This kid was the most... You couldn't teach him anything, and he was the most self-righteous guy I think I ever met in my life. He thought that he had the truth that, that I didn't have and all the other pastors, and he would get up in front of his church, which was six people, and he would get up there, and he would tell them, he would tell them that God showed me things that he never showed Bob, that he never showed Jeff, that he never showed Mel Sabaka, and I got all these great truths, and you come to my church, and we'll have a great deep spiritual relationship like nobody you ever had. One time he got me and another pastor, took us out to lunch. Now, at that time, in my Sunday school, I was running about 1,400 people, long time ago. He's running six. So he took me and Pete out, the other pastor, took us to lunch, and I didn't know what the lunch was about. And during the course of the lunch, he said, I'd really like to help you guys. He says, God has shown me some things that I think I could really help you in your ministries. Now, my buddy, he was, he was, he was kind of didn't know what to say. I always know what to say. I said, now, what do you have? And he started to list some things. And I said, oh, okay. I said, Kevin, let me see if I got this straight. Not my Kevin over here, another Kevin. <laughs> Never this one. I said, okay. And I want you to know from the bottom of my heart, I appreciate you coming in and sharing all that God has given you because we obviously are in need. So you want me to do this? You want me to do this? You think I need to change this and change this and then do this. Is that correct? He says, yes, that's right. And I said, and if I do all of those, you're guaranteeing me I can run six like you. <laughs> and I was on a good day. <clears throat> I, I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I don't plan to know everything, and I got a lot to learn, I am sure. But you know what? There are some people, man, that, like when, and Paul was faced with it. They want proof of Paul? Really? Now, you know, you, you, you don't have the abundance of revelation. You, you've never built anything. He's come in and built this whole church, and now suddenly you know more about it than he does? This is what he was faced with. 
Now, this is what the church at Corinth was all about. You see, I don't care. I, I don't care. You, you find these things in everybody and, and, and where they're at. Uh, and, a great, and a great principle taught here for ministry is simply this. People who do nothing for God. And you want to write this down because it's true. People who do nothing for God are always criticizing the people who are. It's just that simple. And in doing so, Titus 3.11 says, are condemned of themselves. Because the bottom line is Paul was doing it by the book. Paul was going by what God gave him to do. The church at Corinth was so screwed up, they couldn't figure anything out. And there's people in the church, oh, I would love to go back and defend him. I, I'd really like to be back at the crucifixion. There'd have been a fourth cross up there if I'd have been there. <laughs> I would have loved to stick my foot in that thing, man. I would have. There's many places in the Bible that I read, and, you know, I got an imagination like anybody else. I would just love to go back. I've always been fascinated about going back in time anyhow. And I would have been absolutely, would have loved to have been dropped into places in the Bible where somebody needed to stand up for the guy that was taking the shot. And, of course, the reason why God didn't have anybody stand up to take the shot is because the guy got stronger through the shot. I understand that. Paul became who he was because of the burden that he had. I understand all that. But it just boils my blood that somebody would look at Paul, the man who changed my life, the man who taught me everything, and then say, give us some proof of Christ being in you. I'll give you a proof. Man, I'm going to drop that one right there. <clears throat> now, in this chapter... In his closing remarks, he leaves them with one of the greatest teachings he could ever have given them. Just three simple points. You might know it was three. And it sets up one of the greatest sermons you'll ever put together and certainly one of the greatest devotions that you ever have. And, you know, a devotion is something when you're a ball captain or, you know, you get asked to do it or you're in the prayer group groups, you know, it's a very short thing. It's something that you take a verse, you want to take a thought, you want to take something. You don't want to give them three out points in a poem. You just, you know, you, you just take some, a thought and a concept and leave it with them. And boy, this works, but it's also a great sermon. What an ending to a great book. And what a message to all of us today. Sometimes you just, you know, have to move on. You can't make somebody do what's right. Uh, you waste your time with indifferent people and never get to the ones who who uh, can really affect, uh, you can really affect their lives. Now, in verse 5, he gives them three points in this little outline for them to follow. And this is as good as it gets for us if we follow them in our own lives. Uh, this is great for if you're a young Christian. It's great for if you're a medium Christian or if you're a, a well-done Christian. I mean, it's, it, it works for you. And it's what I call in Christianity and your walk with God a maintenance program. And everybody needs one. He says in verse 5, examine yourself whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you except to be reprobates? Now let's just take those and break those three points down for just a few minutes and then we'll be out of here. And uh, I know I should have never told you about World War Z and that's all you got on your mind now tonight, but put it out of your mind. I have. Take your Bible and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter Z. I'm just kidding you. <laughs> First thing he says is this. Examine yourself whether you be in the faith. I cannot tell you this morning how important it is 
for God's people to do self-examinations. It's one of the reasons that for the church. It's one of the reasons for the preaching of the church. You know, people examine themselves. We examine ourselves all the time. Uh, my wife has a constant fear of, 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 of ticks getting on her body. Most women do. And I, she'll, she'll go out in the yard and take Otis out, and Otis will come back, and, and she'll be looking in the mirror to see if she's got any ticks. I mean, it's a thing where we all examine ourselves, something. I mean, uh, we want to look at, in the mirror to make sure our makeup is okay. If, you, if it's hot out, the first thing a lady does when she goes into a restroom is excuse herself and go to the restroom, make sure her mascara is not running. Make sure their face is still on, whatever that means. Make sure her hair is done right. I see people up the gym all the time. They, 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 get, on, they get, on the, get on the scale. They're always weighing themselves. They're checking themselves. We check ourselves about everything. We really do. I mean, I've seen people had a sore throat. and did, they, they looked down my mouth and, do you have any white stuff on my back of my throat? All the time. All the time. I mean, bug bites. Oh, man. I mean, it, you know, you got a bug bite on your leg. You out there? We sat down in the grass last night had our devotions. Chiggers. I got them everywhere. <laughs> I was only down there for 10 minutes. But you see, them little chiggers, they get everywhere. I don't know what to tell you, man. Checking yourself. Looking at everywhere you go. I mean, everybody, every, every, in every church, every church, you know, you should never go to a church that always may, I know, you got to be uplifted and you got to, I understand that, but you just go to one of these feel-good churches, a church should force you to self-examine yourself. It really should. And what you hear, you look at yourself in light of that scripture, and then you fix what's wrong, sometimes on a daily, sometimes on an hourly but it's, one of, it's the reason why God gave the concept of the church and, and the preaching and the teaching in the Bible. God would rather have you come to church on Sunday morning and me preach the fire out of you and you self-examine yourself and get right than me to make you feel good. You go out of here and God have to deal with you on his own. All my life I've had people in my ministry or come through my ministry, that, you know, and they're your friends as long as you don't have to correct them. And at the moment you do, you're the bad guy. I've had people over the years come into my church, you know, that the women ran the family. When she found out she couldn't run me, I was the bad guy. You always have people who don't want to self-examine themselves. Or in some cases, if you have to deal with their children. You remember back uh, when he was dealing with them in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 over the Lord's Supper? Remember what he told them? He says, he says, if you, if you, Come and take the Lord's Supper, and you do all of this. He says, before you do it, he says, but let a man examine himself so that he let him eat that bread and of that and drink of that cup. He says, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. You see that? He's saying, before you take the Lord's Supper, examine yourself. Understand what the Lord's Supper is about. It just isn't a cheap meal of a little piece of bread and a glass of grape juice. It commemorates the broken body of Christ. I don't think there's any more holier time in all of the church than when the church comes together to take the Lord's Supper. But we go in it like we're eating at McDonald's. And we, we, there's a time when we have to examine ourselves, and a Christian should have that maintenance program. Now, it says, examine yourself whether you be in the faith. This verse has always been used, and I understand it, in a way that you examine yourself to make sure you're saved. I'm not taking that away from it. 
I understand that. But there's more than that here. He's, first of all, he's talking to a church of saved people. The faith is more than just accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior. The faith would represent the full body of Christian doctrine. What he's saying is to be in the faith means you're saved, sure, but also well-established in what you were supposed to believe as a Christian. That's what he's talking about. He's not just saying examine yourself that if you be in the faith, this church for the most part is saved people. He's saying look inside you. Do you do you live, do you live what you believe? That's what he's saying. Are you in the faith? That's a great question. Salvation. Well, I'm saved. Can you explain the, what happened the day you got saved? Can you take me to the Bible and show me the actual process that took place? That's what he's talking about. We have a lot of people that believe they can lose their salvation. You know why? It's because they cannot explain, number one, what happened the day they got saved because if you understood that, then you know you never could lose your salvation and they struggle with that. Spiritual gifts, do you understand them? Premillennialism. Why do we believe that? Why do we stand on that? Can you explain it? Are, are, you, are, are you in the faith? We have people running around. In fact, we had a little guy here a while back that wanted to come in and tell everybody the church was going through the tribulation period. He didn't last very long when he bumped up with some of you guys. But do you understand why you're not? It's a faith. It's more than just, yes, I'm saved. It's are you grounded? Do you understand what you're supposed to believe? The Bible issue. Why we believe the King James Bible is the Word of God. Don't you have any grasp of manuscript evidence at all? Church history, your roots. The Bible says there are seven things a Christian is not to be ignorant of. I guarantee you, 99% of God's people are ignorant of them today when the Bible says we're not to be ignorant of it. Seven times. I'm a Baptist. You know why I'm a Baptist? I know there's a lot of goofy Baptists out there, and I wouldn't give you a two cents for most of them, but I'm a Baptist because down through church history, there were seven, seven Baptist distinctives that those people, long before they were called Baptists, held to, and are the same things I hold to. Do you know what they are? See, when it talks about examine yourself to see if you're in the faith, it's not just talking about I being saved, and yes, we should examine ourselves where we're at with God every day. But examine yourself. Are you growing? Do you know? Somebody says, well, I'm saved. Big deal. If you don't even know what you believe, what you're supposed to believe. What does it prove? And he says, examine yourself whether you be in the faith. The next thing he says there is, he says, prove your own self. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 says that, uh, uh, that we are to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God in our life. Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, I tell people this all the time, prove all things, hold fast with that which is good. Somebody tells you something about the Bible or tells you something about somebody or something, don't just believe what they say. Take them and prove what they say. That's what the Bible says. What's so hard about that? Now, in Judges chapter 3, verse 1, I gave it to you last week. He said that he, gave, he left after all the battles they fought, that he left some nations there for them to fight that would what? Prove them. God wants to prove you and me. But I got to tell you this, God wants to prove you, but he wants you to prove him. You know what he says in Malachi chapter 3? Verse 10, 
God says you need to prove him. It's an incredible verse. God says, don't take me by faith. Prove me. Prove me out. Find out if I'm who I say I am. Now, if God allows you and me to prove him and suggest we should, you can bet your bottom dollar he's going to prove you and me. Now, how does he do that? How does a person prove themselves? I mean, when you go, to the, you go someplace and you want to get on an airplane, you've got to prove you who you are. So you have a driver's license. I guess we get John 316 cards. I had a cop pull me over years ago, and I was on my way to the hospital. Somebody had been in a wreck, and I was, you know, and he pulled me over because I was going too fast. Okay, and that was an emergency, you know. And, and, and I, he walks up to the car, and, and, you know, and I got my Bible laid on the seat and everything, and he says, excuse me, sir. He says, you were going fast. And I said, yes, sir, I was. I no question about it. He says, what's your hurry? He said, I said, well, I'm a pastor. I'm going, I'm going to the hospital. To, a, a person of mine is in a hospital, and I, officer, I was going too fast. Just You can give me the ticket. I'm guilty. He says, you got any proof you're a pastor? I looked up and I said, I can quote John 3.16. Would that work for you? It didn't. <laughs> How do you prove it? You have a Christian card on you? I mean, you go to Costco, there's a guy standing right there looking at your card. Everybody get your Christian card out. Let me see it. See? How do you prove it? I mean, how do you prove it? When the Bible says to prove all things, how do you prove it? When Romans chapter 12 says, he says, when he says that you prove with that good and acceptable word of God, how do you prove it? When he says, prove your own selves, how in the world do you do that? It's real simple. It's real simple. It's not hard at all. It's real easy. It comes down to this. Does what you say and what you do in your life match up? It's not hard. If what you say in life and what you do in life, do they match? Is it by the book? Do you claim to be a Christian here, but you operate outside the book here? It's simple. It's not hard. You remember when we come through 2 Corinthians chapter 3, way back in verse 2, it said that you and I are a book, an epistle, written on our hearts as what? Remember? Read of all men. You're a book. Romans 14, 7 says, no man liveth to himself and no man dieth to himself. Somebody's always reading your book. How do you prove who you really are? How do you prove you're who you say you are? Do you live what you say? It's that simple. Not hard. Somebody showed me online the other day that you can go buy a book now that has that you can put your face on the cover of the book with a title, any title you want, and they'll take a, a, a book, and like you wrote the book, you know, My Life Story, you know, with your name on it, Bob Alexander on it, in color, and it's a book about that thick, but when you open it up, the pages are blank. One of them gimmicks you get on, 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 on the Internet. Remember, everything's true is on the Internet. You want to remember that, too. I, I often saw that. The moment I saw that, I thought to myself, boy, that ought to be exactly what most of God's people get. They could get that book, put their picture on the front, and title it, My Relationship with God. When you open up, it's all blank pages. You're a book, and people read you. And you don't prove yourself by just what you do. You prove yourself by two aspects, what you say and what you do, what you claim to believe in what you do. Well, I came to believe this, but when you do it another way outside the Word of God, read the book. Read the book. Read the book. Somebody had a T-shirt on here. I think it was a teacher who said read last week. Was it you? Yeah, you're a teacher. That's a great one. You had to read. You had to read books. 
He says, examine yourself if you're in the faith. He says, prove yourself. Then he says the third one, know ye not your own self. Sure we do. The issue for you and me, let's be honest today. The issue for you and me is the fact that we don't know who we really are. The issue for both of us is the fact that we don't want to be honest about who we are. There's a fundamental reason for everything that goes on in people's lives. I want to show you the fundamental reason, and you want to mark this down. I want a fundamental reason why people quit going to church. It's found in James chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, 24, 25. It's not hard. It simply says this, verse 22. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Now, the first thing he says in verse 1 is don't deceive yourselves. That's what most people do. Most people deceive themselves. You see, what the Bible does when you go to a church that preaches the Bible, any church, what the Bible does is play that game that we all cade when we read the fairy tale many, many years ago, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? And when you go into the church and open up the Bible, and I've told you many, many times, the Bible's the only book, when you start reading it, it starts reading you. And what you're faced with and what you're forced to face is who you really are, and you look at your natural face in a glass. He says, a hearer of the word, that's on Sunday, not a doer of the word, that doesn't match Monday through Saturday. See how simple it is? Now, our church has been exceptionally blessed with naturally beautiful women. So what I'm about to say doesn't really affect any of you here. <laughs> but you and I both know that there are women in the world, saved women, unsaved women, not women of the world, women in the world, who you never, when you meet them, you never see what they really look like. You're looking at them under five pounds of Revlon, Max Factor, Avon, and Silly Putty. <laughs> You're looking at them not as they really appear. And we don't have that problem here. Because all of you could wear no makeup at all, and if you walked into a dark room, it would immediately light up. I believe that with all my heart. There are churches that you go to that part of their church covenant and doctrine is women don't wear makeup, can't wear it. It's against the Bible. And if you went to those churches one or two times, you'd kind of decide if you were in Creature of the Black Lagoon movie theater or you were in a church someplace. As old Bob Jones Cena used to say, in those cases, nobody here, if the barn door needs painting, go ahead and paint it. I understand all that. <laughs> Men are the same way. I've seen some of your kids in the, in the restroom. Well, real men are waiting to go to the bathroom. Your little kids go in there, lock the door, and comb their hair, fix their hair. Make sure the part's just right. I was in there one day, and one of those little guys came in, and he stood in front of that mirror, and uh, somebody was out there banging on the door. And he was in there, and he was just... <clears throat> you get this stuff that makes your hair stick up, like pointed stuff. I'm not sure what that's all about. 
Uh, we were someplace a while back, and it was this guy who had his hair all shaved, and up the middle of his hair, he had real stick bristles just come up like a mohawk, but it was about that high. <laughs> and it was green, purple, and yellow. I was all colored up. It was real nice. <clears throat> I looked over to my wife, and I said, where's he at when you need to clean your battery terminals? <laughs> <laughs> but this kid was... And he was, and I was standing back there kind of watching him, and we just had it all right. I went up behind him and just went, missed it all up again, <laughs> opened the door. Guys do the same thing. My point is all this, if there is a point in any of this. <clears throat> you wouldn't dare, a woman wouldn't dare climb out of bed in the morning, come to church with her natural face on. Come to church with her natural face on. Most guys wouldn't either. We have to fix ourselves so we're presentable. I'm not against that at all. I'm really not. I'm making a point. A lot of people do that spiritually inside when they come to church on Sunday morning. They prep it up, prop it up. They get it all ready to go. By the same token, people cover up the worldly ways in their life that they look one way on Sunday. And you see, the problem isn't why people don't go to good Bible-pleaving churches very much anymore. It's because all that gets stripped off. I think the most humiliating thing that could ever happen to anybody is a strip search. <laughs> because they look for anything you can hide anywhere your imagination could think you could hide it. <laughs> and if we, had a, if we had down here where when you come down the steps that there was two deacons there uh, and two female deacon wives... And the deacon men would take the men into a room, and the deacon women wives would take the women into the room and say, we have to script search you to come into our church. Do you think anybody would come to this church? I guarantee you they would. Who would? Darren. Who? Darren. Oh, Darren. Darren said he would? Okay. I'm surprised that Daigle didn't have his hand up, too. I kind of worry about that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, okay, Darren, thank you. More information than any of us needed to know. But, you know, we laugh and have a good time about that and how stupid that we'd ever do that. But, you know, in a sense, every time you come in here and sit down and open up the Bible and the Word of God gets preached, you get strip searched. You actually think you can hide some things from God in places he can't find them. Now, that's why people don't like churches that preach the Bible. Because you can't hide anything. It forces you to look in that perfect law of liberty. And it says that when a person does that and they don't like what they see, did you notice the verse that says that he goes his way? Not God's way, his way. You see, the Bible forces us to, to, to look at ourselves. The Bible forces us to, to, to know who we really are. And we all do. We just don't want to admit it. And when you come to a church where they don't make you feel good all the time and they're always fluffy about things and they get right down to business because they understand God's business and when that Holy Spirit of God walks up and down this aisle and in between these aisles, brother, you ain't got a stitch left on. The Bible says all things are naked and open unto him and the eyes of which we have to do. Amen. Amen. I'm telling you. That's why they don't come to church. That's why they don't like churches. 
I mean, if we had the lights down this morning and a praise band over here and a drummer in a cage back here and a crystal ball at a disco and the lights were off and we had the band start playing and smoke came out and then I come walking out with, and talking to you, we'd pack the place out. You see, when you know yourself, you not only know your strengths, but you know your weaknesses. When you know yourself, you're honest with yourself. You're honest about yourself. You don't try to go all through your life blaming your issues and your problems on somebody else or something else. You know at the end of the day, it's me and it's you. You and me and you and me alone control who and what has access to us. And there comes a responsibility and accountability of what we let in and what we don't. We are responsible for the circumstances and situations we find ourselves in through the bad choices that we've made, through the bad relationships that we've had, through the dumb things that we've done. And when they're not in our control, when we didn't do anything wrong and we find ourselves in those situations, we are still responsible to do what the book says. Those three points are the greatest maintenance program you can check yourself on. I mean, they really are. They are three things that you can carry with you the rest of your life. I mean, do you, you do maintenance on your house, don't you? You do maintenance on your car, don't you? Well, I, we spend money maintaining our pets. We maintenance our boats if we have them. We maintenance our trucks if we have them. We, ma- we maintenance our lawn. We maintenance our shrubs. Why would we not do maintenance on our own Christian life? I'll tell you why. It's simple. Because it's easier to accept the fact that your car's filthy, dirty, and needs a good wash job than it is our own lives. That's why. My advice, sell the house, sell the car, kill the dog, sink the boat, get rid of the truck, pave the lawn over and paint it green, burn the shrubs out, and just spend all that time examining yourself. That's my advice. Forget the car. Do you know what would happen when you would drive your car 100,000 miles without needing maintenance on it? Some of you probably do. (laughs) That was a pretty stupid thing to say. I'm sure many of you do. I mean, when that little red light on the dash that says oil comes on, It means something. <laughs> I mean, you never change your oil for 100,000 miles. You never change the air filter. You never check the transmission fluid. You never check or rotate the tires. You never have the spark plug changed. I don't even know if the cars have spark plugs today. But you never, check, you never change the wipers. You never mess with the electrical system. You never check the headlights or fix them or the taillights. Your whole car would fall apart. And, you know, it's the same way with your house when you stop and think about it. I mean, if you never cleaned it, ladies, if you never dusted it, if you never, guys, replaced the rotted wood around the windows, if you never changed the furnace filter, I mean, if you never checked the air conditioning and the gas and the Freon or the electrical stuff, if you never scrub the floor, you never clean the carpet, you never wash the windows, you know what it would be like? 
it would be just like so many of God's people's lives today. It would be an absolute mess to live in. It would be miserable. A total mess. Uh, and, 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 and remember, you got to remember this. It can get to the place where it's impossible to get fixed. You can let your car go so long that you can't do anything with it anymore. You can get your house in such disarray that nobody will buy it and you're stuck with it. And we can get our lives because we won't do maintenance on it in such disarray that it's impossible to fix. Not because of the Bible says what you, it, it's impossible to do it. It's the fact that you put yourself in a situation that's impossible to do it. You can bet on it. Maintenance in it. That's where some people get. You see it all the time. See it all the time. Now, in his life, Paul has many lessons for us. And this is one of the greatest that's found in this chapter. It's the fact that we can't reach everybody. There are some people saved and lost who just are untouchable. Some people will never change because at the end of the day, bottom line, fundamental, foundational problem, they simply don't want to. So in this final chapter, he simply tells the church, I've done all I can do. And sometimes you get to the place in your life that that's where you're at. And in people's lives, there can come a time when you've done all that you can do. He says, three times I've come unto you, one more than I should have. And three times I've met resistance to God's plan and God's word. He says, I've shown you how to do the ministry. And now you have to take responsibility for your own life and you have to do it. He says, I must move on because there's other people who want to hear the truth, who if I stay here with you and spend and waste all of my time, I'll never get anything done with you, but I'll never reach them who want to do something with the Word of God. I have a commission to God to teach the Word of God to people. And he leaves them in verse 14, and the last thing he says is a great thing. It says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. I think that's one of the greatest things that he could have said toward the end because those are the three main things in your life you've got to have. The three most important aspects to your relationship with Christ is simply that. It is the grace of God, understanding the love of God, and having the communion with the Holy Spirit of God. And the way that you guard those three things in your life is by the little outline that Paul just gave us is by constantly examining yourself, constantly proving yourself, constantly knowing who you really are. Next week, we'll begin to look at leadership. Leadership will demand of you this three-point outline. Leadership will demand that a man or a woman understand these three things. They understand how the daily maintenance themselves. There's nothing special about leaders. They're not made out of special flesh and special blood. They don't have bones made of another element that common people have. Leadership is based on basically a man or a woman coming to the point where they understand what God has done for them, they understand the importance of it, and then they undertake a maintenance program in their life to never get out of step with being in step with where God wants them to be. We'll start that next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for 
this great book and for that great chapter for